But we are in the book of Amos, so if you want to be open there, to Amos chapter 7. The prophets that God has sent to his people throughout history have generally been disliked, if not despised. It depends on the season. And they've almost always been ignored. And that's perplexing. It's confusing. You wonder how that could be. But Jesus himself lamented that truth in Matthew chapter 23. And I'm gonna, this is serious beginning, but I was also told I had to make mention of chickens today in the service. And this is it. It's in this passage, okay? Matthew 23, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says this. It's a serious passage, but it does mention a chicken. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this response of God's people to his prophets is not too difficult to understand, even though if you just, you think, why, why didn't they get it? But then you think about it, you go, I get it, I get it. After all, God did not send prophets to people with hopeful messages. They weren't encouragers, really. God's prophets were sent to warn Israel to repent, to return to faithfulness. They were often God's last attempt to get their attention after constantly trying to get them to turn, sometimes for generations. And no one likes to be judged. That's what the Jesus Jerk video was partly about, right? And besides, most people who were confronted by prophets seem to have been genuinely surprised by their warnings. Most of the people who heard them speak thought they were crazy. They're like, what are you talking about? God's fine with us. Who do you think you are? And to be criticized is difficult even if you deserve it, right? You've been criticized when you deserve it, and that's hard to take, let alone when you think you're right. To be criticized can be intolerable. Amos chapter 7 begins by revealing to us something about what happens between a prophet and God before they bring the message that they bring. And so it's an interesting setup for the conversation about how prophets are received, which is what this message is about. But Amos chapter 7 gives us kind of at the beginning a behind-the-scenes look at part of the relationship prophets have with God that most of the people to whom they're sent have not appreciated. So if you have Bibles with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Amos chapter 7. I'm going to begin just by reading the first six verses. We're going to do the whole chapter today, but we'll do it in segments. So this is Amos chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is what the Lord God showed me. And behold, he was forming a swarm of locusts when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about, when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord God, Please pardon, how can Jacob stand, for he is small? The Lord relented of this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand, for he is small? The Lord relented of this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Throughout the history recorded in the Bible, God has often invited his prophets to intercede for his people. When God informed Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, God allowed Abraham to negotiate with him about how many righteous people it would take to spare those cities of God's judgment. 
That story can be found in Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 to 33. Centuries later, only weeks after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery to the ancient Egyptians, the Israelites had already broken several of God's commandments right there at the foothills of Mount Sinai, and they had made a golden idol of a calf and were worshiping it. In the wake of that sin, God revealed to Moses on the mountain that he intended to destroy the Israelites completely and fulfill his promises to Abraham through Moses alone. And Moses begged God to have mercy on his people, and God relented. The text says God did not do what he had said he would do. That story can be found in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. Similar exchanges like that can be found between God and the prophet Samuel, God and King David, God and the prophet Isaiah, God and the prophet Jeremiah, and God and the prophet Ezekiel. And here again, in the book of Amos, we witness the prophet pleading with God not to do something that he said he would do. The first call of a prophet is to have compassion on God's people. Prophets are not simply given a message and then told to bear it. They genuinely care for the people of God. Their ministry is born out of a love for God's people. God often invites them to intercede on behalf of the people. And that's not because they're priests. It's not because God's people require mediators. It's because they have been given information that others have not been given. And so they pray to God about it. Amos too asked God to spare Israel of two plagues, a devastating locust plague, that, according to his vision, would have destroyed all the food in the land, and a catastrophic fire that would have accomplished the same end uh, by different means. And as he had with Moses, God heard Amos's prayer and relented and did not send the judgment. Through his mercy, God spared them. However, God decreed a third judgment against Israel, from which Amos did not persuade God to turn away. Continue with me as I continue reading in Amos chapter 7, verse 7. So he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not spare them any longer. The high places of Isaac will become deserted, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be in ruins. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, I don't often do this, but I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible with you, and your Bible says plumb line, to just scratch it out. <laughs> That's an English translation, but it's not what the Hebrew says, but it's understandable. I don't often do that. The text that I just read said that God was holding a plumb line, and a plumb line is a way of making sure something is level. I'm sure I've used it in landscaping a number of times. I usually use levels in a house, but outside sometimes with a wall, I would use a plumb line. But that phrase does not occur here in the Hebrew. Commentator Douglas Stewart explains what's going on, so I think I have a slide for you for that. Unfortunately, the Hebrew word here is anak, you don't have to remember that, though there is a quiz at the end of my time <laughs> for the other words. But anak is the word here. And unfortunately, uh, Stuart writes, anak has been widely mistranslated as plumb line. 
And this definition was never more than a guess. You might not know this, but there are no dictionaries of ancient Hebrew where you can just look up words and figure out what they mean. Not for the translators. They give you those, but they don't have them. And if a word is only used once, and this word is only used once in the entire Old Testament, they can't even look at other contexts to know what it means. So they guess based on other languages around the area, and that's what they did with this word. This definition was never more than a guess because Akkadian, which is an older language than Hebrew, anaku, which is similar, can refer to either tin or lead. And since lead is often used as a plummet for squaring walls, anak has seemed a, a synecdoche for plumb line. But the Hebrew for plummet is different. It's mishkolet, which is not here. And for the line that holds it, kav. Thus, anak, used only here in the Old Testament, clearly means simply tin. So the second slide will show you Stuart's translation, which is this. This is what Yahweh showed me. He was standing on a tin wall, which is what it actually says, and he had some tin in his hand. Yahweh said to me, what do you see, Amos? I said, tin. Yahweh said, I'm going to put tin within my people Israel. I'll no longer pass him by. You, you have no wonder why they went with plumb line, right? What in the world does that mean? But if your Bible says plumb or plumb line, I would encourage you to write tin. Because that's the word. The word is tin. Why tin? Well, that is both interesting and illuminating. And I've been trying to not be too excitable in my messages, but this got me excited. Like, I like new information. First, tin was an essential part of making bronze in the ancient world. The ideal ratio is 9 to 1, but you can get away with 8 to 1 if, if you have to. And bronze was important in the ancient world for a lot of reasons. During the Bronze Age, it was important for making weapons. Uh, but we're not in the Bronze Age with Amos. We're in the Iron Age, as historians say. But it's still used mostly for temple shrines and idols and castings and artistic endeavors. So still very important. It's made from copper and tin. Copper is somewhat common in the ancient world, though not as common as other metals, but somewhat common. But tin was not. As Robert Madden, Tamara Steck-Wheeler, and James D. Moley have explained in their article, Tin in the Ancient Near East, Old Questions and New Finds, here's the quotation, Tin has proved more elusive because there are almost no geologically verified deposits in Southwest Asia or the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. Because the origin of the tin used by ancient bronze workers cannot be pinpointed with accuracy, it has become the mystery metal of the ancient Near East. And because of this rarity, tin was very valuable. And historical sources indicate that it was often shipped to the Middle East from great distances. We know of deposits in South America that they might not have known of. There's some in America, there's a lot in Africa, but it came from great distances. You'll notice also that Stuart said, you see in that brackets in his translation, he said moaning. I'm gonna put tin in Israel, moaning. Why that? Well. The article continues with this. This is also from Madden, Wheeler, and Mully. The tin cry provides a means of identifying tin in the field. If you ever find tin laying around, which is unlikely, you can twist it. If a small sliver of metal is removed from a tin artifact and twisted, it produces an audible sound. The sound is produced by a sheer movement of atom layers over other atom layers, which in tin occurs at very high speeds. Zinc is the only other metal that cries. But as far as we know, it was not used in a metallic form in the Bronze Age. So tin is a valuable metal, 
rare in the ancient Near East, and when twisted, it cries out. Interesting. God, I'm going to put tin in Israel, God says. God was going to place a highly valuable and sought-after metal in the midst of Israel, which would attract those who wanted to acquire it. In terms more familiar to us, God was telling Israel that he was going to put blood in the water. What does the myth say blood in the water attracts? Sharks. And what would tin in a city attract? Looters. In response to Amos' prayer, God relented and did not send a plague of locusts that would have caused a famine. In response to Amos' prayer, God relented and did not send a fire that would have destroyed crops, animals, and housing. But God did decree to allow the greed of the surrounding nations to draw them into Israel. How do you think Amos' message was received by the Israelites? You think they got amens? You think they clapped? Tell us more, preacher. Do you think that's it? No, it's not how it went at all. Look with me at Amos chapter 7 now, continuing in verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For this is what Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and do your do prophesying there. But do not prophesy at Bethel any longer, for it's a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. The high priest of the chief temple of the northern kingdom of Israel, which was located at Bethel, we talked about that a few weeks ago, a man named Amaziah, informed the king of Amos' seditious prophesying. That's what he accuses him of being a traitor and commanded Amos to return to his country. Now, we might remember from Amos' biography earlier that he was originally a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah, so he's not a native to the northern kingdom. So in essence, Amaziah wants Amos deported for a lack of patriotism. That's essentially the claim. And he was failing to respect the northern king, the northern kingdom, and their sacred traditions. So why don't you go home? We don't need your kind here. Did the northern kingdom thank Amos for interceding on their behalf with respect to a devastating locust plague or a catastrophic fire? No, they didn't even know Amos had done that. They didn't know that those judgments were even decreed against them. Did they repent when Amos sent warning to them from God that judgment was coming if they did not turn? No, they didn't believe he was a prophet from God. Instead, they said, why don't you go home and prophesy to your own people? I'm sure there are people back there who like you. They'll listen. We don't need you. We don't need any more prophets here, especially prophets that are not loyal to the king and to our sacred traditions. So Amos responded, and this is his response in chapter 7, verse 14. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you prophesy against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Furthermore, 
Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. I don't think anybody said thanks be to God after he read that. Now Amos gives us a bit of his biography here. We've already discussed this during our first uh, lesson in the series. But it's important to remember that Amos was not a professional prophet. He had not set out to be a prophet. He was not trying to make his living as a prophet. Amos had been a rancher of sorts. The word he uses here is not for caring for sheep and goats, but for larger cattle. So he was a rancher and he was a farmer. He tended sycamore fig trees. The Lord simply came to him while he was working in the fields and told him to leave home, go north, and prophesy to the neighboring country. So by telling him to return home, Amaziah was both telling Amos to disobey God and telling God to stop talking to them. If this is God, we don't need to hear it, and we don't think it's God, so why don't you go home? What this means is that the northern kingdom refused to heed God's warning and turn from their wickedness. Therefore, the judgment that God had decreed about the tin would indeed come. Now, Amos' language sounds harsh. You wouldn't want to hear God saying these things to you. But it's more like consequence than it is like punishment. God has simply described through Amos the treatment that they would receive from the nation surrounding them. This is what neighboring kingdoms at this time did to people when they looted their villages. And so God is saying, if you will not go with me, you will have to go with them. There is no neutral ground. You either follow me or you follow them. And if you follow them, this is what they will do to you. You already know what I'll do to you if you follow me, he says. I mean, he's given them the word. And this is what they'll do. You might think they're friends, but wait till I put something in your city they want and you'll see how friendly they are. Now, maybe it's easy to sympathize with Amaziah in these verses. I mean, how was he to know that Amos was the real deal? I mean, there were probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of people at the time masquerading throughout Israel as prophets. And most of them, knowing where their bread was buttered, probably had glowing things to say about the country, the king, and their sacred traditions. And if you can find someone claiming to speak for God that tells you everything you want to hear, why would you want to listen to somebody like Amos? Why should Amaziah take this man more seriously than any of the others? Well, God had actually talked to them about that in the law. God had given the Israelites two ways of identifying true prophets sent from God. The first can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. The text says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your countrymen, to him you shall listen. This is in accordance with everything that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God again, and do not let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Israelites probably spent all their lives wishing to see God, but the day they saw him, they never wanted to see him again. <laughs> they begged him never to show himself again. And, and verse 17, And the Lord said to me, They've spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, a word which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how will we recognize the word which the Lord has not spoken? 
When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not happen or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of him. Now, of course, we know this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus, ultimately, right? Jesus is the prophet like Moses who we must listen to. But it's also God has raised up prophets in almost every generation that fill this role, especially when the people go astray. So God first instructed Israel that if God sends a prophet, then the judgment that the prophet declares will occur. If it does not occur, then the prophet was not sent by God. Even a prophet like Jonah, who made a prophecy against Nineveh, Nineveh repented and God did not do it. But a few generations later, under the prophecies of Nahum, what Jonah threatened did indeed occur to the Ninevites. So God may delay, but he doesn't turn away. That's his first instruction for discernment. His second instruction for discernment can be found earlier in Deuteronomy. In chapter 13, verses 1 through through 5, it says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let's follow other gods whom you have not known, and let's serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. To find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken falsely against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to drive you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall eliminate the evil from among you. God's second test has to do with whether the professed prophet calls the people to obedience to God's word or to other allegiances. If a prophet comes and even does miraculous signs or correctly predicts future events, but that prophet leads the people away from faithfulness to God's word, then that is a false prophet. And did you notice this? Did you catch this? Such a prophet might be sent by God himself to test the loyalty of God's people. Both of these tests could have been applied to Amos. First, Amaziah should not have put Amos out of the country until his prophecy was conclusively proven false. Second, Amaziah could have scrutinized the content of Amos' prophecies to see if they were consistently calling the people to faithfulness to the revealed will of God or if he was calling them to other loyalties or other behaviors. Amos' prophecies, as we've seen during this series, easily pass the second test. And history now has recorded the accuracy of Amos' prophesied destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. In 722 B.C., within a generation of Amos' life, The kingdom of Assyria, who used iron weapons, by the way, would fulfill the words God spoke through him. So that's the text. So what about us? Aren't the days of God communicating in these ways finished? Now that we have the written word of God, why would God need to communicate to us in any other way? I used to believe that too, but I don't any longer. And that has mostly to do with my own experience. Much like Amos, in 2016, I was a simple shepherd tending a small but blessed flock in central New Hampshire. I was a pastor. By that time, I'd been serving in pastoral ministry for 15 years. To that point, I had only ever heard God speak through his word. 
Now that's not to say I didn't have emotional experiences that I associated with God. Of course I did. When I was 16, as I shared at the beginning, I had an experience that I felt as an unmistakable call to feed God's sheep, as what I did for a living. And I interpreted that the only way I knew how, as a call to ministry, and so I pursued pastoral ministry and the vocation of a pastor. But in 2016, something changed. I wasn't sure at first what was happening, but something changed. I was leading our congregation through a preaching series through the Old Testament book of Judges. And I was preparing to preach a sermon from the life of Gideon. And it was entitled, Fear, Faith, and Confusion. Preached it, I think, in June of 2016. And in the midst of preparing for that sermon, I began to feel an overwhelming conviction that God's judgment was coming on the United States of America. I felt it so strongly. I received that conviction initially through a study of the scriptures as I saw such commonalities between what was happening in Gideon's day and what was happening in our culture. And so I preached what I understood to my, my congregation that weekend. And I moved through the rest of the book of Judges after that to a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I was becoming more and more convinced that God had already begun to warn us. And that more serious warnings were on the horizon. And I found, much to my surprise, that many preachers had been saying this for over 150 years in the United States. And I started to just imbibe their messages and read them if I could read them, listen to them if they were still alive or had been recorded. And as I prepared each sermon, I became increasingly concerned for our congregation generally and for my fellow Christians particularly. And it soon became impossible for me to preach a sermon without at some point pleading with our people to return to full faithfulness to God and obedience to his word in forgiveness of those who had sinned against them and in love for one another. I remember a woman uh, family visited our church from another Nazarene church, and she left halfway through the message, and my usher came up to me afterwards. He said, did you see that lady leave? And I said, yeah. She said, she, she left saying, I did not come here to be yelled at. I, I mean, my voice, I get animated. I'm never angry. But, you know. During my last year, not that I'm never angry, my kids can attest to, but from the pulpit, you know. During my last year in New Hampshire, a layperson sent me a song entitled Clear the Stage. Maybe some of you have heard it. It's sung by Jimmy Needham. And the song talked about idolatry and the need to clear the stage of all the idols that we have come to worship in place of God. And that song convicted us. I remember Jen and I were driving in downtown Concord when we listened to it the first time, and we just started bawling in the car. And during 2018, my wife and I began the hard and oftentimes puzzling process of identifying idols in our lives and casting them aside. In 2018, I was called by a Nazarene church here in the Syracuse area to be their lead pastor. And my family and I received sign after sign that it was in fact God sending us to central New York. And so I didn't wanna leave that church, which is the best church I ever pastored. You guys are great, but I'm just an interim here. They were the best church, they called me, they were wonderful. I didn't really want to leave, but I knew God was sending us, so I accepted. And during my first few months of preaching in Camillus, which is where I was, I felt less urgency. It was such a blessing. I said to Jen, oh, maybe I'm free of this burden. And I was enjoying just being a teacher-preacher again, simply feeding God's sheep. You can tell. That's what I've been doing here. I love it. However, near the end of 2018 and into the beginning of 2019, I had this overwhelming sense every time I read the Bible 
that our time to repent was running out, that a season of judgment was coming like nothing we had ever seen before. At the same time, my eyes began to open. I began to see in the sanctuary in which I was preaching, as though for the very first time, all the idols that had come to populate our worship services and our worship spaces. And I preached what I saw fervently many times to that poor congregation. If you think about them, you pray for them. They're still there. And then COVID came. And when COVID descended on us, I thought, okay, this is what God was warning me about. This is it. This is as bad as it'll get. But it wasn't. God's warnings didn't stop. They continued to come as they had before every time I opened the scriptures. But they also began then to bleed into my dreams. And finally in 2020, I began to experience someone speaking to me in my spirit. And I never heard an audible voice, but the communication was undeniable. And I was not sure at first if it was the Lord or if it was just my subconscious. But I found it impossible to ignore. Jen can testify with me many times. and said, I'm not listening anymore. And then I would say, it just won't stop. They were full of accusations against the church, against me, sorrow, calls to repentance, warnings of judgments, pleadings, and I started to write down some of what I was receiving. In October of 2020, I felt instructed to burn my ministerial credentials and my degrees from all the schools I had attended, which I did in the backyard. Then in January of 2021, I felt instructed to resign from the role of pastor and to leave the denomination in which I was raised, to leave behind all of that history, including my pension, just leave. And I did. I received that word on a Tuesday, communicated with a couple of my prayer partners to just make sure I wasn't losing my mind. They confirmed what I had heard. I alerted my district superintendent on Wednesday. I informed my church board on Friday, and I announced my resignation on Sunday. By that point, I knew that to continue following Jesus, I had to leave my former pursuits behind. My last day as a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene was February 28, 2021. At the time I resigned, the Lord told me I would have a year away, one year, doing what he instructed me to do. And so during that year, I preached online. I produced some podcasts working through the scriptures. I wrote four books. Um, one of which brought together all the warnings that God had been speaking into me that I had preached and put them in one place. We attended several churches during that year, and then one day in August, the Lord told me to go for a drive. I obeyed, and I headed into the city of Syracuse. The Lord then told me I was going in the wrong direction, and so I took some turns, and I started heading in another direction. And I was raised in Massachusetts. I've been here a few years, but I only know how to get from where I am to where I was going. So I didn't really know where I was. Then I felt the Lord tell me that I was to attend the next church I saw. And it turns out I was on West Seneca Turnpike. And the next church I saw, after driving a while, because I was way down the other end, was this church at the bottom of the hill. And as I drove toward the church and around it to head back home, the Lord told me that the people would ask me to lead them. I arrived home. I told my wife all of this. I called one of my accountability partners just so that I had told somebody else. And we started to attend. We had lunch with Reverend Sunga, and I told her about my history and ministry. I told her the story of how we came to the church, but I did not tell her what the Lord had told me. We simply attended. I learned by then, you let God do what he does. 
We attended until that charge conference in which Reverend Sung Ah announced that she had to return to South Korea. And I came home and told Jen, and she said, they didn't ask you to lead. And I said, no. And I never put my name forward or sought it in any way. But within a few weeks of that meeting, Reverend Anderson called and asked if I would consider serving as interim. And I told her I would pray, but of course I already knew in August that this was likely to happen. So here we are. I began a year to the day that I ended my time as pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. Now why do I tell you that? Because, church, as in the days of Amos, God is calling his people to repentance. Now, of course, God is no longer revealing new theology and new teachings. The early church was right to close the canon of Scripture. The Bible is all we're going to get about who God is. But God is still a God of mercy and compassion who calls his people to repentance, warns them about judgment, and extends mercy to those who turn from their rebelliousness and return to submission to him. I began as a pastor, but during this season, the Lord has called me to warn his people that what we are experiencing now, is, it may be global warming from a scientific perspective, but it's not global warming. It's God. The diseases, the conflicts, it's God. He's warning us. And more judgment is yet to come. Now, I spent my early years in ministry arguing with people. Here's the Jesus jerk. I was absolutely a Jesus jerk. I thought for some reason it was my responsibility to interpret the scriptures and persuade people of the truthfulness of my interpretation. At that time, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. But you've probably noticed during my time here that I've not engaged in any theological debates. And that's not because I don't care. But I've come to accept that convincing people of the truth of what God has meant to communicate through his word, that's not my responsibility. In the days to come, God himself will interpret his word for his people. And we'll come to know his opinion by what remains after his judgment has come and what does not. God already told us he would do this through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul wrote these words. According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul as an apostle, like a wise master builder I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. Now we sometimes think of ourselves as a temple of the Holy Spirit. But for Paul, it's the church that's the temple of the Holy Spirit, the gathered people of God. So he's talking about building on the foundation. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about churches that build on the foundation of the apostles. So that's where we are. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In another epistle, Paul says in the epistle to the Ephesians, the foundation is the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. This prophecy is being fulfilled in our day. 
If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. That congregation will be saved, yet only so as through fire. The fire of the Lord's judgment will reveal the quality of those who have claimed to build structures, communities, and churches in his name. God himself will reveal those who do not belong to him and those who do. And so the message that I have been sent, and I feel terrible about it because I worry that you, like my last church, cannot bear it. But the only message that he's given me is the same as that of Amos. It's the same of that of John the Baptist. It's the same that Jesus preached everywhere he went. Repent. For the kingdom of God is near. And I've asked, and you are probably asking, why did he send you here? I don't know. Reverend Sunga gave me a bit of a window when she preached in the fall. Do you remember the message where she talked about the revival that came here to central New York in the early 1800s? And she didn't speak about the second revival that birthed the Church of the Nazarene that came here in the late 1800s called the Holiness Revival. This area has been responsive to God in the past. I imagine that because of his love of your grandparents and great-grandparents, he's given you another chance. And I imagine that there are some here who know that the churches have gone astray, who've been praying. And God wants you to know he has not abandoned you. He's merciful to those who rebel. He's merciful. He loves his people. But now the time of mercy is ending. We must repent. And it's for God to say who's right. Not for you, not for me. We just read the scriptures. Don't be a Jesus jerk. I often say to my kids, if you need an excuse, let me be the jerk. God is making the same offer to his people. If you need an excuse, let me be the jerk. Thank you for listening. That was more personal than I wanted to share, but I knew I had no choice. I, I take all of these ministries with an open hand. I didn't seek this one. It was just placed there. And the day that it's taken, I'd give it back. I suspect, I don't know, Reverend Sungai never told me why she recommended me the DS, and the DS never told me why she asked me. I'm not a pastor. I don't understand. Maybe she can say. But my hope is that the church to which she returns will not be the same as the church that she left. And that she herself will come back rejuvenated. This is a season of repentance, but it is for our good. I hope you can bear the message. I will not argue with you, but I will preach the word. Because I do love you. This is my final word to you today. I have, I've been in the church doing ministry since 2000, 2000. And I did camp ministry starting in 96. So it's been a while. I have never enjoyed being with a group of people more than I enjoyed yesterday's chicken barbecue. <laughs> you are some wonderful people. But you know, right? We're in rebellion. Our goodness doesn't save us. It's faith. Faith saves us. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. So this is a season for you to ask the Lord, where have I gone wrong? He'll speak to you. You don't need me. Nobody needs me. <laughs> 
You just need God. If I can point you to him, then I've done my work. That's it.